as we now look to our Lord in prayer. So, Father, we need incredible wisdom and great guidance because this works out practically. has a way of impacting everything about the way in which we live. If we're single, the way in which we handle our singleness. If we're married, the way we handle our marital relationships. Parents, the way we handle parenting. Work, the way we handle our work. But most importantly, the way in which we manage our lives in relationship to you who sent Jesus to die in our place. So, Father, in these minutes that you've given us to be together, what we're now asking is that once again you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, Come here again, Father, to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of Mark Twain's final tours of Europe, he took his daughter along with him. And they were being greeted and honored by royalty, scientists, artists, And by everybody, it seemed to be in the know. At the end of the tour, something was said by his daughter to Twain that had an impact upon his mindset in the latter days of his life. His daughter said to him, Papa, you seem to know everybody but God, don't you? And when I came across that statement, I thought of what the Apostle John had written in his gospel. Because in John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus in that upper room had stated, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, the stakes are high here. This is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, as we've penned in this handout you find in your bulletin this morning, that there is something with regard to informational knowledge about God. Or you can know something in terms of his bio-sketch. But something more significant than a bio-sketch about God, informational knowledge, is to have a sense of personal knowledge. To enter into relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is why the Apostle John said that this was so significant. The stakes are so high. And this is eternal, not temporal life. That they may know you. Not merely know about you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what I want to do with you now is this. Based upon what we covered last week in that cosmic courtroom scene, 
is to draw three aspects of knowing God that are found here in these verses that have direct bearing upon the way in which you and I go about living our lives. And the first comes out of verse 3. That if you and I, if you profess to know God, note first of all with me the test that God sets for us. And there's a test here found in verse 3. Can't escape it. Notice how verse 3 begins. Verse 3 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And you say, well, Gary, what do you mean and by this? Well, as we covered last week, let's do it one more time. And by this means that we know, number one, by this that Jesus Christ is our advocate. We know by this, number two, that Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ the righteous who died for the unrighteous. And by this, number three, we know that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. You do not have to experience the wrath of God upon you or upon me because Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, averted that wrath by experiencing God's holy justice serving as our substitute for our sins. That is meant behind that phrase, and by this. And by this, we know. Now, mark that word. It carries with the idea that you and I have certainty. This is not possibility thinking. This is certainty thinking. I'm not an expositor to expound possibility thinking. I'm an expositor to expound certainty thinking that Jesus Christ said it is finished. That the resurrection is validated by the empty tomb and the eyewitness account. And so now he is stating to you and stating to me based upon all that we have come to comprehend regarding who Christ is and what Christ did, we know. So we have this relational, experiential, personal, present tense knowing. And this is critical because J.I. Packer years ago penned a book entitled Knowing God. If you haven't read it, you'll want to read it. And in a particular chapter, he posed these questions with these answers. What were we made for? To know God. What, um, um, what aims should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. And by this, we know that we come to know him. Many years ago, when I was trying to discern if God was leading me out of the profession I was pursuing into pastoral ministry, I decided that I would do my own personal tour of various churches that were known for expository teaching of God's Word, where 
the text on a given morning is held in context and the expositor does not go beyond the boundaries the boundaries of that text on any given morning. Only interested in what God said, not infusing his opinions into the text itself. And one that I knew would always do that was Stuart Briscoe. And so because of my location at that time in school, I would head north occasionally into Wisconsin and sit under his teaching. And I remember Mr. Briscoe on one Sunday morning many, many years ago telling the story of a person that he knows. She had been on a flight and she had been reading a book and she was engrossed in the book. It was a page turner. She loved what she was reading, and there was a man sitting next to her. And he kept looking at her and looking at what she was reading. He said, you really love what you're reading, don't you? And she said, oh, yes, it's the best. It's the greatest. And so he began to ask questions, and before long it became obvious to her he was somewhat knowledgeable about this book. And so she began to talk even more freely about this book and began to talk about the author of this book. She turned to the back flap, and there was a bio sketch of him, and she read it to the man sitting next to her. Well, long story short, by the end of the flight, it became clear to her that the author of the book had been sitting next to her through that entire flight. (laughs) And a year and a half later, they were married. When she got on that flight, she knew something about the author. As time passed, she knew the author. The objective of knowing the scriptures is to know the author. We read the book to know the author of the book. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. And all the details pertaining to the Godhead, who God is and what God has done. Well, we have got to be absolutely certain in light of the fact that the stakes are high. The Apostle John had penned it. In John chapter 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, doesn't read, and that they may know about you. This is not mere information or knowledge. This is personal. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What you and I have got to do is to move from the information, oh, as important and significant that it is, and allow it to be the guide by which we move toward the personal, the relational, regarding who God is. And then we are utterly astounded that on that cross, the one that we know in that cosmic courtroom as our advocate, the one that we know at that cross was the propitiation. The one we know is Jesus Christ was willing to take the judicial sentence. My God, as we have reiterated in previous weeks, my God, he would call out in that fourth word on the cross, not my Father, 
my Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you nor I would be forsaken, and we would be able to cry out, my Father, my Father. And now what he has done is taken the judicial sentence to offer you and me the personal relationship. So that it's not enough to know about God. It's not enough to get a bio-sketch on him and think that that'll do. But to know God. And all that entails. And so now, and by this we know, it's a certainty here, not a possibility. It is experiential. And furthermore, it goes on to say, and by this we know, that we have come to know him. Now, by saying we have come to know him, it looks back upon the past and says that it is ongoing in the present. In other words, there should have been a point in time, Lord willing, where you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repenting of sin, putting faith in Jesus Christ, and as a result, you know him even more intimately, more personally, more relationally even now than then. But what is fascinating is that he now takes this next no. By this we know that we have come to know him. And in essence, what he's now saying to you and to me is that it's not only possible to know him, it is possible to know that we know him. Have you considered that possibility? That it is not only possible to know him, it is possible to know that you know him. In other words, now, what he is saying is that for people in this world, there is the possibility for certainty. Not the possibility for more possibility. The possibility for certainty when you've put your faith exclusively in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. You see? Now, we live among people that are incredibly insecure about their finances, about their health, about their work, and on and on and on it goes, about their relationships, about where they are versus where they want to be. The dynamic here is that what God has done through Jesus is to bring a sense of security and a sense of certainty. We can know that we know him. And this is based upon God's work. This is not merely informational. This is personal. In Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24, Jeremiah had written, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows Not merely knows about me. Some bio sketch. 
But now you're saying, but Gary, what about this test? Well, notice the italicization that we've utilized here. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. And here's the test. If we keep his commandments. Not if we fulfill our dreams. Not if we satisfy our wants. If we keep his commandments, and his commandments then draw us right back then to our Lord. And this deals with a continual sense of devotion to our Lord. General Montgomery was a leader both in World War I and World War II. He was the fourth born in his family, and his father had been a pastor in Great Britain. Great leader. Books have been written regarding his principles of leadership. There is one particular that he used to describe as a means of illustrating one's relationship to Jesus Christ as one who professed faith. The biography states that General Montgomery, a professed Christian, has often revealed basic principles of obedience which should govern us as people under our Lord. When he came into command in North Africa to rescue the Allied forces, as everything was seemed to be going wrong at that time, General Montgomery expected his commands to be carried out. He said, quote, Orders no longer form the basis for discussion, but for action. Now, previously, orders had generally been queried by subordinates right down the line. I was determined to stop this state of affairs at once. So now in your adult Bible fellowships, and in your life groups, in your conversations with believers and the likes, remind yourself, in the midst of discussions, orders no longer formed the basis for discussion, but for action. And now, what the world needs is not merely claimants of knowing God, but practitioners, people who give evidence to the fact, to the claim of knowing God. And so we do what we claim, and we live it out in a way that brings honor and glory, not to ourselves, but to God. And when we do that, we're passing the test. And God established this test. The church is not. And by this, by what we covered in verses 1 and 2, that cosmic courtroom and all that unfolded, we know that we have come to know that information? No. Him. Comma. If we keep his commandments, which means now you're bringing assurance to your heart as you begin to live your life before the one who died for you. 
And so then, that assurance is such that you remind yourself of this. Because of what Jesus Christ did, my salvation is secured. My obedience ushers what has already been secured. So the assured and the secured come together. And out of this now, what happens is a second aspect of knowing God. If the first is the test that God sets for us, then the second is the assurance God provides for us. It's found in verses 4 and 5. But again, the Apostle John is so incredibly wise. Here's what he does. He balances the negative with the positive once again. Not the negative to the exclusion of the positive, and not the positive to the exclusion of the negative. This is wise living, wise writing, wise relational. Verse 4, he begins with the negative. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So now here you've got a claimant on your hands that says, I know him. Now, what he, John, is doing at this point is addressing something that is now prevalent in the Middle East. Carries with the idea of what was known increasingly as Gnosticism. That you can enter into a mystical relationship with God, knowing him, without dealing with the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Just have this powerful, mystical experience. But what we find here is that there is something objective that he will put at the forefront to determine whether or not you truly know him. It's fine verse 4. An objective test leads to no objective assurance. Whoever says, I know him, but here's the flip, but does not keep his commandments... Here's the challenge, is a liar. The danger at this point, then, is this. It's possible for one to profess to know God and yet be a liar with regard to that profession because the profession is not a possession of faith. The profession of faith is not a possession of faith, and they have embraced the counterfeit and thought that it's the truth. And there's nothing more dangerous than a person believing that he or she is a believer than, and then finding out later they are not. And they have living, been living off of the bio-sketch. All along they have got their, their understanding about God and never grasped the significance of the high-stake matter of knowing God. And they thought that the counterfeit was the real, when it's not the real thing. Notice how it reads here, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. It does not say is a liar, and the truth is not coming from him, spoken by him. No, 
what John is saying at this point is that the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, is not resident from within. You're leading, then, a conflicted life. You're leaving off the bio-sketch rather than the dynamic reality of knowing him rather than merely knowing about him. And he would say, if that's the case, lovingly, he's saying you're a liar to yourself. Lincoln had a challenge with the press. They were always baiting him. So one time, Lincoln was trying to make a point, and the press was unconvinced. So Lincoln tried another tack, and so he said to a particular disputer now, well, let's see now, how many legs does a cow have? And the replier came back, four, of course, cynically. And Lincoln agreed, that's right. Now suppose you call the cow's tail a leg. How many legs would the cow have? And the opponent replied confidently, well, five, of course. And Lincoln came back, well, now, that's where you're wrong. Calling a cow's tail a leg does not make it a leg. Five is not four. Calling something is not the same thing as being something. So he moves beyond the artificial claims to the real reality. And so he wants you and me to start thinking seriously about not merely what resides in us, but who resides in us. So he starts with the negative. In verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. It does not read, and the truth is not flowing from him. He's more dramatic than that. The truth is not in him. But he doesn't end there, does he? To be wise, you have to be balanced. And so if you're going to use the negative, then you're going to have to state the positive. So he moves to verse 5 and says this, But whoever keeps his word in him. Now draw a line from the in him with regard to the liar in verse 4 to the in him of the one who keeps the word in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And now you begin to think seriously about the fact that when you and I are obeying our Lord, we are loving our Lord. And we tie back now what we covered last time when we took that detour, where in the upper room, what Jesus Christ had said to John and to the others was this in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He was talking to his disciples at that point, wasn't he? And then added, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, advocate, 
to be with you forever. Now you pull that together, you see. And the measure of my love for Christ is determined by my obedience to Christ. And the measure of my love for Christ is determined by my obedience to Christ. I am not saved by my obedience, but I give evidence of my salvation by my obedience. And the evidence that I give brings assurance to others, but also assurance to my life as well. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected, you see. Salvation secured at the cross, the heart assured by God's grace. By this we may know that we are in Him. People need assurance. This, then, is the assurance statement found at the end of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him, because I typically find that what people are struggling with throughout the days of their lives is a lack of assurance. During the first half of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, some 20 men fell from the work to death or serious injury. So finally, they stopped construction. They built this incredibly large, giant net under the area so that if anyone fell, they'd be caught. And during the rest of the construction, only eight men fell, but all were caught. The workers felt safer. The workers felt more secure. The workers were more productive because they had a sense of assurance based upon security. Now, the basis for my internal security is my eternal security. And what God has done when I fall, I do not fall from grace. I fall into grace. Which means then we've got to get right back up and be productive once again. What God has done for you and for me then at this point in the brilliance of his plan of redemption is set the test for us, provide the assurance needed by us. We put all that together and we say to ourselves, that is a sovereign God who's brought security and assurance, comfort, and yet measures to my life. But now there is one more aspect, important, that flows out of this. It's found in verse 6. See how it reads? Whoever says he abides in him ought to, what? Walk in the same way in which he walked. So he's back to these people who are claiming Whoever says he abides in him. John loves that word abides. 
John used that word agriculturally in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, talking about the branch that abides, you see, in in the tree or in the plant, whatever way you want to go with horticulture, the sense of abiding. But then adds this. Whoever says he abides him also ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. When I read that, my mind goes back first to the Genesis account and then to John's account and Mark's account. In Genesis chapter 5, you've got what might be described as a chapter of the obituary. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. One person after another is listed in an epitaph until you get to Enoch. And in chapter 5, when you get to Enoch, what you and I are told with regard to Enoch, and Enoch walked with God. Which paved the way then, you see, to Genesis chapter 6, where we read in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And I talked those, took those two descriptives, you see, and I put them in my Bible right next to a passage of Scripture that I covered when I took the congregation through the book of Mark years ago where I had reached a point in my studies in Mark where there was a passage of Scripture where I found I couldn't even read this sitting down. I had to stand and keep walking back and forth in the office processing this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, you and I are told, and they were on the road, Jesus and the disciples, going up to Jerusalem, And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. He was not merely walking. He was walking ahead of them where they knew that courageously, directionally, purposefully, he was setting the pace, he was leading the way, he was going to the cross in a mixture of amazement with a sense of anxiety so overwhelmed them, that then he offered this as a teaching moment of what Jerusalem would unfold for them. And now John in his latter years will use the same Greek word for walk. And in verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he speaks speaking of Jesus, walked, not randomly, purposefully, directionally, letting Jesus take the lead. Does that describe your life this morning? 
the test God sets for us, the assurance God provides for us, the example God gives to us, wrapped up in Jesus. And so now we look very carefully at ourselves and we take that spiritual inventory. Have I settled for something less than knowing God? Something simply about knowing about God. The flap the back of the book where I've got a bio sketch, you see. And then I accept the fact that the stakes are high and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent because in salvation it's who you know that counts. Papa, you know everybody but God, don't you? She asked. What we want each and every person who knows us to be able to know is that we know God and that we know that we know Let's stand together. So, Father, knowing you is not pursuing mystical experiences with you. It's going through the finished work of Jesus Christ where he could cry out, my God, so that we might be able to cry out, my Father where he took the judicial so that we could have the personal relational. So if there's anyone here today that has settled for something less informational knowledge rather than a personal relationship, speak to that heart, pray that the Holy Spirit work powerfully within that soul, Pray that they will repent of sin and put faith exclusively in Christ. Lead them to you. And remind them that what Jesus Christ secured is such now that they can be assured they know you and can walk with you. Commit them to you, each and every one in each and every service. Pour your spirit now upon each heart here, and in the adult Bible fellowship that follows. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.